When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, a podcast dedicated to helping you take back control of your mind, mood and mental health. In this episode, I interview Harvard-educated psychologist, relationship and communications expert, and award-winning author, Dr. Melanie Joy, on how to get relationships right and thrive in life, love, and work, the common psychological dynamics that underlie all kinds of relationships, how we can strengthen our relational immune system to resist not only interpersonal stresses, but also societal stresses such as racism and sexism, and how we can help strengthen our children's relational immune system. Dr. Melanie and I also discuss how to correctly apologize, the formula to make up often argument or mistake, why it's so hard to apologize sometimes, and the most common mistakes she sees people making in relationships. Before we begin, I want to tell you about something I'm so excited about. You can now pre-order my new book, 101 Ways to Be Less Stressed. This book is packed with simple self-care strategies to help boost your mind and mood and mental health. Right now, when you pre-order, you can get 20% off. This book is a great gift for Christmas and birthdays or simply just for yourself. Just go to drleaf.com for more details and to order. The link will also be in the show notes. If you enjoy my podcast and want to know how you can help me continue making them possible, please consider subscribing wherever you listen and leaving a five-star review. And please continue sharing this podcast with friends, family, and on social media. And now, on to today's interview. Dr. Melanie Joy, what a joy it is to have you in the studio with me today. I'm really excited to talk to you about a topic that is actually really current. I mean, it's always relationships are always an issue and always important. And I just think at the moment with these very trying times that are going on around the world, I couldn't think of a better person to talk to. So thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. It's an honor. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So am I, so am I. So before we begin, can you just tell my listeners and viewers a little bit about yourself and tell us something that's not in your bio, you know, those those little tidbits that people love to hear. You know, what motivates (laughs) you and why do you do what you do? Well, I'm, you know, my my own personal story, my journey is actually what led me to be here today talking to you. So I can start with that. Here I am talking about relationships with you. And of course, I've spent a lot of time thinking about relationships. It's a big part of my work. And interestingly, the relationship that I think catalyzed the path, the work that I ended up doing was my relationship with my dog. That was 
really a formative relationship for me. And I've spent some time, you know, really reflecting on my journey and how it unfolded the way it did. And, and it brings me back to when I was a little girl and I had a dog named Fritz. And Fritz was, you know, in many ways, my best friend, like a lot of kids' dogs are. And I really learned what it was to, to have a friend. What did, it, what did it mean to have a relationship with somebody of another species? You know, what does respect look like when we're relating to somebody, for example, of another species? What does friendship look like? like. And it was interesting because my work has evolved over the years to to look at relationships in a very holistic way. I think this is one of the things that's a bit different about the work that I do in relationships is that I I look at, you know, what is a healthy relationship and what does that look like, not just between humans, but also between humans and animals and between humans and the environment. And, And I've really been able to, you know, observe and understand, come to understand that the blueprint is really the same. It's really the same formula. A healthy relationship is based on the very same principles and practices, regardless of of who you're relating to, including, you know, your relationship with yourself. And what happened with me over the years was that I had this dog who I loved. I also grew up eating a lot of meat. I was like the meat lover's pizza girl. And at one point in 1989, it was actually my relationship with another animal that set me on the course of the work that I ended up doing. And this was in the form of a hamburger. I ate a contaminated hamburger and I wound up in the hospital severely ill. And after that, I stopped eating meat because I was just, I was really disgusted. And I started learning about, you know, my new diet, which was vegetarian and then vegan at the time. This was back in 1989. So there wasn't a lot of information. But what I learned shocked and horrified me. I could not believe what was happening to animals to become our food in the environment. And I, I just couldn't believe it. This you know, but what probably shocked me even more was that nobody I talked to about what I was learning was willing to hear what I had to say. They would tell me, say, don't tell me that you'll ruin my meal, or they'd call me a crazy vegan hippie propagandist. And and so this really made me wonder, how is it that rational people, people who are compassionate, people who care about their relationships with other animals, people who care about being healthy could just shut out, you know, just stop thinking and feeling when it came to this issue. And and so I embarked on this journey to study the psychology of violence and nonviolence. You know, what is it that makes people turn away from suffering in the world, human and non-human suffering? You know, and what is it that can help people to actually face the truth of what's happening in the world and their relationship with the world in general, not just their immediate relationships. And and this was what really led me to, to recognize the incredible importance of understanding healthy relational dynamics, not just as they apply to, you know, our life partner or our colleagues, but to all of our relationships. That is beautiful. That's that, and it's. I mean, just carry on with that because you. I mean, you recently wrote a book that just picks this up. Called the memo. Actually, hold it up here. So called getting relationships right, how to build resilience and thrive in life, love, and work. I love that. I love the title. So you obviously took because you're Harvard trained psychologist and you took this knowledge and you've really turned it into. I mean, people relationships are people. A lot of people talk about relationships, but you have a unique angle. So can you kind of unpack that for us? 
Yes. Well, thank you. Well, I came to this work that I'm doing, looking at the psychology of violence, as I said, and really looking at the psychology of oppression and, you know, which is the flip side of of healthy relationships. And so, you know, in my earlier work, I was looking, I wrote my doctoral dissertation eventually on the psychology of eating animals. My question was, how is it possible that those of us, you know, myself included, right, all of us who care about animals, we love our dogs, we feel connections with animals, nevertheless support an industry that kills, you know, more animals in a week than all humans have been killed in all world in, in all wars combined, right? So so this is staggering. So so what is it? It's happening in our psyches because we know, you know, we're good, most people are good people and they care. And how do we act against our core moral values of compassion and justice without realizing what we're doing? And so what I came to recognize is that I, I identified basically the psychology, what I later wrote about is the psychology of oppression, this particular way that we are conditioned by the various some of these systems that we're born into, racism, sexism, classism. In my case, I was talking about what I called carnism, this invisible belief system that conditions us to disconnect from our natural empathy when it comes to animals we've learned to classify as edible. And so I was very interested in these psychological dynamics, these kind of like mental gymnastics that we go through in order to, you know, and then act against our own interests. And so I eventually studied the oppression, uh, the psychology of oppression more broadly. And this led me to realize that, you know, when we look at problems, if you think about some of the most pressing problems in the world today, war, you know, poverty, animal exploitation, climate change, toxic communication, you know, these massive problems in the world today. And if you think about some of the most pressing problems in your own life, you know, that you experience you'll notice that they have a common denominator. And this common denominator is relational dysfunction. It's a dysfunctional way of relating to other humans, across human groups, to other animals, to the environment, and to ourselves. And so the good news is that when we learn the formula for practicing healthy relationships, we can actually apply that formula to every single interaction that we have, every relationship we have, long-standing relationships with our life partner, brief interactions with the cashier in the grocery store, our companion animals, and you know whoever we encounter. Mm, that's amazing. So you, you talk about oppression and you talk about the, the, the tendency of people to, well, it's the not natural tendency to violence, but why people go in that direction. Can we start there? That's abnormal. It's not normal because as, as humans, we naturally want to relate and we want to connect and we want to have good relationships. So what is it that shifts it in that toxic direction? Yeah, exactly. The point that you make is really important. Two points that you make. One is that we know that we are hardwired to empathize with others. Empathy is our natural state. And when we oppress others, when we support oppression, you know, whether it's funding, you know, factory farms, for example, or whatever, we're acting against that natural empathy. So we empathy is our natural state. And we also know that we're hardwired to seek meaningful connection and to avoid the pain of disconnection. So we really want the same we thing. We want that, so, yeah. Right. So what causes us to act in ways that ultimately disconnect us from one another? There are many reasons for this. One of the reasons that I wanted to write Getting Relationships Right is because I wanted to talk about a reason that most books don't talk about, which is these various social systems that we are born into that condition us 
that condition us to disconnect from our natural empathy when it comes to how we think of and relate to certain individuals. We, so I'll give an example. When we think about, let me go back to, to carnism, which was my original work, right? Most of us feel natural empathy for other animals, including farmed animals. We want to pet the pig in the petting zoo, right? Yet we go to the supermarket and we leave the supermarket with bacon. So what's going on there? Not, this doesn't mean we're bad people. We've been socialized by this system that distorts our perceptions, carnism, so that when we look at bacon, we see food rather than a dead animal. Now, if somebody told us that the bacon we were looking at was made from a dog, we would not see food. We would see a dead animal because we haven't been conditioned to have our perceptions distorted in this way. And so what these various systems do, and obviously there's more to the, there's, you know, it's a much more complex issue of why we act against our interests. But one of the reasons that we do this is because, you know, we have learned to think about certain individuals and groups as being less deserving of respect or empathy. In this case, I'm, I'm talking about certain animals, but this obviously applies to how we relate to humans as well. One of the things, you know, Sorry, I if think, I may, may interrupt, yeah. just what's so relevant to what you've just said is the current issue with, you know, well, not current, the issue of racism, which is on Absolutely. fire at the moment in, in the States, as you know, and sort of globally, and it should be. I mean, something that we, that, I mean, you, everything you're saying, I'm thinking the, all the discussions that are happening this week are so related to what you've just said now, that people have been conditioned societally to seeing, looking at people in a different way. Anyway, so I just wanted yeah, to. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we don't recognize these systems that we've been born into. And so we end up just acting them out and, and feeling, you know, defensive anytime something, you know, with white people, for example, feeling defensive anytime some something challenges, you know, our sense of privilege or entitlement or, you know, so these racism is one of, of many systems and all of these systems, you know, they're, they're founded, they have the same core, they, they create the same mentality in us. And this is, they're all founded on the same belief. And this is the belief in a hierarchy of moral worth. What that means is a belief that certain individuals or groups are more worthy of being treated with respect than others. It's like that is the core belief that drives all of these dysfunctional systems. And the system can be as small as two people. You know, if you look at a dysfunctional relationship, an abusive relationship would be a good example, you know, because it's more extreme. The person who's abusing has this belief that, you know, the rules that apply to me, do you don't apply to me. You know, I'm entitled to break the rules, essentially. I perceive you as less worthy of being treated with the same level of respect that I expect. And so I call these systems, these are non-relational systems. They, they condition us to act in ways that are non-relational. That mean ways that end up creating disconnection rather than fostering greater connection. And I mean, the good news is that the antidote to many of the problems in the world today and in our lives is relational literacy, the understanding of an ability to practice healthy ways of relating. If you think about it, you know, most of us have to learn complicated geometry that we'll probably never need to use. And yet we don't get a single lesson on how to be functional relational beings. And you know, the problems of our world are not problems that are due to people who don't know how to do geometry well enough. It's people that aren't relating because that's where our greatest desire, as you said, is for deep, meaningful connection. And if we're not getting that, you know, you, you say that this basic moral 
or this basic principle is that people are just I have this value system that I'm better than you and you don't have to I don't you don't have to follow this I don't follow the same rules that you do or they don't apply to me you know that that obviously starts with a group of people that have almost come into an agreement that this is okay and then it's grown and influenced and became started with a, it started with someone with an idea who spoke to another person and they built a little clique and then that just grew and grew and grew and, and affected society so you have to kind of catch it at its core where did it start I mean is that is that where you're going is that in this discussion <laughs> how do we do this I mean these systems are these systems are self-perpetuating you know they've been around for a very long a very long time and and you know really the key is becoming aware of them but the system these these dysfunctional systems they can be as large as millions of people and they can be as small as a family system it still is there's a way the system is organized that maintains you know a power imbalance you know one person has more power in the system you know like say it's an abusive father in a household you know one group has more power in a system but the, there's this assumption that you know there's a hierarchy of moral worth i'm worth worth i am more worthy than you are i am more worthy of getting my needs met than you are i am more worthy of being treated with respect than you are often this belief is is you know most of the time this belief is unconscious but if you look at all of these problematic systems whether it's an abusive relationship, whether it's a dysfunctional workplace, whether it's a social system, they all have this same core belief. And, you know, it's not just a question of who is oppressing whom or who is abusing whom. It's also a question of like, why and how do we oppress and abuse in the first place? You know, what is the process? You can see that we, when we talk about oppression, when we talk about abuse, when we talk about dysfunction, Often we look at the content, who's doing it and who's being victimized. And of course, this matters. But what matters even more in some ways is why are we doing this? What is driving us? And, and how does this process get carried out? The formula for healthy relationships is basically the opposite of the formula for abusive or oppressive relationships. Talk us through the formula for the, and the formula, the process of how they get abusive and how they. Yeah. And what the antidote is. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, absolutely. So when you look at, like, you think about in your own life, right? If you think about a relationship in your own life that you feel like, you know, that you would describe as a good relationship. Let's say you describe it as a great relationship. You know, chances are in this relationship, you feel connected with the other person, right? And chances are you also feel that this other individual, you trust that they will practice integrity towards you. Integrity is basically practicing the core moral values of compassion or caring and justice, which is fairness, right? So when somebody practices integrity towards you, it means they treat you the way that you would want to be, they would want to be treated. They're respecting you. So you probably in this great relationship, you feel connected with them and you feel you trust that they'll treat you with respect. And you probably also believe that they honor your dignity. What that means is that they don't perceive you as somehow less than them. They don't see you as less worthy of moral consideration or worthy of respect, that they really see you as just as worthy as they are, right? And if you think about, you know, a relationship in your life that's not a great relationship, let's say it's a lousy relationship, maybe it's a relationship that like, you don't even know the person, maybe it's an online troll, somebody who's been trolling you or something. 
chances are you have exactly the opposite experience. You don't feel connected with them. You feel disconnected from them. Chances are you don't trust that they're going to practice integrity towards you. In fact, you, you, you have seen that they violate their integrity when they relate to you. They treat you disrespectfully. And chances are you don't feel that they honor your dignity. They don't perceive you as being as worthy of being treated with respect the way they would want to be treated. Those are two opposite, two sides on, of the relational spectrum. So a healthy relationship is one that reflects integrity, honors dignity, and results in connection. A dysfunctional relationship is one that violates integrity, harms dignity, and results in disconnection. And this is, these are two sides of a spectrum. So a relationship can be more or less dysfunctional or healthy. And of course, in the same relationship at any given time, it can be more or less dysfunctional or healthy. So it can move between the two depending on what happens. And that's, does that, is that a lot of that from mis- miscommunication, misunderstandings? How would you describe it happening where it shifts from the one side to the next? Well, I mean, in general, a relationship that's basically healthy will stay within the healthy end of that spectrum, right? You know, in, the, in those boundaries. People who, you know, really, it ha- a lot of the time, you know, we get into trouble in relationships because we simply haven't been taught the skills. You know, we have not been taught the basic fundamentals, how to communicate with each other effectively. For example, communication is the primary way we relate. And most of us do not communicate very effectively. So maybe maybe pick up on that. What would you say? That's the main thing if you're not taught to communicate, because my first degree that I did was communication pathology. So I'm very mm-hmm. fascinated with what you're, what, you're, what you're saying. So can you... T- Talk, talk us through that. What should we be teaching our kids? What, what should we be learning? It's never too late to learn. How can you, as an adult, maybe you are, some of the viewers are listening to this and watching this and thinking, okay, well, that's me. So how do I learn to communicate? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are great books out on the subject. There's like, you know, it's not rocket science. The good news about all of this is that it's not a mystery. You know, there are tools out there. I wrote a book on it. You talk about this. There are other books on communication, but there are a few tips that people can really, you know, just take and use practically right now. And one of them is to to recognize the basics of a communication in the first place. Every communication has two parts. It has the content and it has the process. So the, the content is what we're talking about. You know, it's the subject. The process is how we are communicating. And most people, most people overfocus on the content, but really the process matters more. Oh, that's so good. I want to emphasize that most people focus on the content, but the process, which is how you communicate, matters more. Absolutely. So if you think about a communication that you think about a conversation you had like a month ago or six months ago or a year ago, you might have forgotten the content entirely. You don't even remember what you talked about, but you probably still remember how you felt in that communication, in that conversation. The process typically determines how you feel. So the process matters more. And a healthy process When your process is healthy, you can talk about anything without arguing. And when your process is not healthy, you can't talk about anything without arguing. You've probably seen people that are totally on the same page and they'll still find a way to fight with each other. So a healthy process has as its goal to, it's the goal of a healthy process is mutual understanding. 
The reason that we communicate in the first place is simply because we're not telepathic. Communication is our way of sharing what's happening in our minds and our hearts. Okay, so the goal of a communication is to share your thoughts and feelings with one another. So when your process is healthy, your goal is mutual understanding. When your process is not healthy, which is, you know, very commonly the the case, then you have various other goals or agendas. Your goal might be to be right, which means to make the other person wrong. Or your goal might be to win, which means to make the other person lose. And this is where people get into all sorts of trouble and power struggles. That's brilliant. That's just so, as you say, basic. It's not rocket science, but it's just just that alone is is such a great guideline just for anyone who's listening now. Content and process, process more important. And if you if, if it's mutual understanding is the goal. So if if it's not mutual understanding, if you're trying to win, then the other's got to lose. If you're trying to be right, the other one person's got to be wrong, and that th- throws the power balance out because the goal should be mutual understanding. I mean, those are basic principles all of us can remember and bring into every conversation. Yes, we can. And there are also principles that we tend to forget because as soon as we start to get heated and we, as soon as we you know, start to want, really want to get our point across or we feel like the other person's not listening enough, we push, we push harder. So we have to keep reminding ourselves. So one, one thing that you can do is like when you notice that you're starting to get into trouble in a conversation, you, you notice that you're starting to feel you know, stressed in a conversation and that you're starting to get into debate mode. Pause and ask yourself, like, okay, what is my agenda here? You know, am I trying to win something here or am I simply trying to communicate my thoughts and feelings and understand the other person's thoughts and feelings? That's so good. What about coming into a conversation with assumptions about the other person? Because I think that happens a lot. If people have had continued connection and there's been a fiery connection or something, there's just been, then you come into that conversation with assumptions. So how does one handle that? Because that definitely won't be what you call relational literacy. It's going to be illiteracy, I assume. So how do we deal with those assumptions that we come into conversations with about people? Well, the first is a great question. I mean, the first step is simply to be aware that we're making assumptions and we're making assumptions all the time. We are constantly creating stories or narratives in our minds. And, you know, these stories or these narratives really, you know, the story that you tell yourself about a situation determines how you feel about it and how you feel about it determines what you do. So if you come into a conversation, you know, like, let's say your, your partner left the house a mess before they went to work in the morning and you see the mess, you make up a story about it. Oh, my partner just really doesn't care about my time. They value their time over my time because now I'm the one who's left to pick up the mess. That narrative is going to create the feeling of anger. Anger is the emotion that emerges when we're faced with something we perceive as unfair or unjust. And then that anger is going to drive you to engage in a behavior. Maybe it's to yell at them later, to criticize them later, to dump their dirty socks on their side of the bed or whatever it might be. The first step is recognizing that you're, we are always making up stories. And a lot of the times our stories are not accurate because they're based on our subjective perceptions. So that's step one. And then you can check your narrative, you know, with the other person and share when you're communicating with somebody, you can share, you know, your observations. This is kind of like basic quasi nonviolent communication, you know, effective communication principles. You share with the person when you're entering into a conversation, here's what I observed without your narrative, right? So let's just go back to the mess situation and say the end of the day, your partner comes home and you say, you know, 
when I got up this morning, your socks were all over the floor. And then you can share the story that you made up, but own it as your story. You know, so I found myself thinking, you know, you know, your socks were all over the floor. So I found myself thinking, you know, you just threw them there because you weren't really thinking about the fact that you weren't, you know, caring about my time, that you were just not taking me into account. But the difference here between saying, here's my observation and here's my interpretation of the observation, the difference between doing that and starting with, you don't care about my time. You value your time over mine. The difference is that you're owning your story as your own. You're not saying my story is the truth. You're saying my story is my story. And I get it. Maybe my story is wrong. That's so good. And immediately the person doesn't feel that they have to defend and they don't feel they're being put on the spot. They're actually given a chance to correct the story. Exactly. And they don't feel like you are what's called defining their reality, meaning they don't feel that you are making yourself the expert on their experience. You're not saying to them, I know what your motivation was. I know what you were thinking or feeling. You're saying, here's what I observed. And, you know, we're, we're both observing the same thing. This is a concrete observable behavior here. So we're not going to debate. The person's not going to say, no, I didn't leave my socks on the floor, especially if they're still there. And here's my interpretation. Tell me, you know, and then you can also follow up with your feelings. You know, so I felt, I felt really hurt by that. I felt really angry about that. And then you can follow up with your needs, you know. So I'd really like to understand what happened this morning. And I'd really appreciate you picking up your socks in the morning. This reduces defensiveness significantly. And it really helps you not fall prey to the stories that can be very disconnecting in your relationships. You know, because a lot of the disconnection we experience in our relationships is because we make up stories about a person, about another person, or we do this about ourselves, you know, I'm not good enough or whatever we might do to ourselves that are dis they're disconnecting stories. That's brilliant. This episode is brought to you by Public Goods, the one-stop shop for affordable, sustainable, healthy household products. From home and personal care to premium pantry staples, all in one place. Public Goods searches the globe to find clean, healthy, eco-friendly and innovative products like sulfate-free shampoo, hand sanitizer and tree-free paper products. I love how Public Goods makes it easy to shop for all essentials in one place and how beautiful the items are packaged and look. No more ugly soap bottles or containers in my house. I also really appreciate how Public Goods makes an effort to source items that are good for me, my family and our planet. Knowing what's in your products and where they come from is important. Small changes in the way we shop can make big impact on our mental and physical health and the world at large. We worked out an exclusive deal just for the Cleaning Up the Mental Mess podcast listeners. Receive $15 off your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. That's right. They are so confident that you'll absolutely love their products and come back again and again that they're giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. You have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com forward slash Dr. Leaf or use the code Dr. Leaf at checkout. That is P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com forward slash Dr. Leaf to receive $15 off your first order. The link and more details will be in the show notes. 
I love this. I love that you that, that we've spoken about assumptions because I think this is something that people instinctively know they're doing, but they don't verbalize it. So just the awareness, you've, you know, just discussing this now amongst the two of us and everyone listening is bringing awareness to the fact that we do have these assumptions and you've given a great simple technique of owning your story and not assuming to be the expert on someone else's story and giving them the chance to explain themselves and then working out a mutual solution. You know, it's, it's such simple stuff and immediately you're going to create that relational literacy. What I want to just pick up a little bit on is the, the story that, that we tell ourselves because there's so many people's identities are so shot. This is a huge problem and it's a very big problem amongst our millennials today. It, it, I mean, it doesn't just affect them, obviously, but there is a huge problem around understanding who I am and do I fit and where do I fit and these kind of, I get a lot of questions around that sort of thing and I'm sure you do. Could you talk for a moment about that, about relating to ourselves? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our primary relationship is with ourselves. We are relating to ourselves every minute of the day, you know, and we relate to ourselves through our self-talk. You know, we're constantly having a conversation with ourselves. If you ever, you know, pause at any time during the day, and I recommend that people do this, you know, set an alarm to go off and pause throughout the day and notice that voice in your head, right? Notice that voice in your head. And most of us communicate with ourselves in a way that we would never tolerate coming from somebody else. So we we communicate with ourselves or relate to ourselves through our self-talk. We're also relating to ourselves through the choices that we make that impact our future selves. You know, you're making choices now that impact your future self of five minutes from now or five years from now or whatever. And so all of you know, everything that I talk about in, in my book applies to how we relate to ourselves. Fantastic, fantastic book, everyone. We'll put the link in the show notes. Really Thank excellent. You. Thank you. And one of the things that the red flags to look for, you know, in terms of disconnecting emotions or disconnecting attitudes as well, are the two emotions of contempt and shame. These, and particularly when we're relating to ourselves, but actually these apply to when we're relating to anybody. So I I talked earlier about this sense of like, you know, dignity. All of us need to feel a sense of dignity. That means we all need to feel that we are fundamentally worthy beings on this planet. That I need to feel that I have just as much of a right to be alive on this planet as you do. That you know, we all need to feel this. And yet we all have this tendency largely, but not entirely, but largely because of how we've been conditioned by these various systems and beyond to believe in this hierarchy of moral worth that some are more worthy than others. And so what ends up happening, or or let me back up, notice, it can be very helpful for you to notice these red flags of contempt and shame. Shame is not the same as guilt. Shame is, you know, guilt is how we feel about a behavior. We feel guilty when we feel like I did something bad. Shame is how we feel about ourselves. Shame is how we feel not, we don't, we don't feel I did something bad. We feel I am bad. Shame is the feeling of being less than, and in particular, being less worthy than. So when we're communicating with ourselves, many of us communicate with ourselves in a way that's shaming and shaming is a very dis- shame is a very disconnecting emotion and a very emotionally debilitating emotion as well. So notice that voice in your head. Is that voice telling you you're not good enough? Is that voice comparing you to others or comparing you to an idealized version of yourself? 
It's, it's very important because this is what I think what you're referring to with a lot of the voice in our heads and the way that we're relating to ourselves. Many of us are relating to ourselves by comparing ourselves to others, comparing ourselves to an idealized version of ourselves, and the result is a feeling of shame. And when we feel shame, we automatically feel less powerful than we actually are. We lose our, our sense of power. We lose our sense of dignity that we need. And shame is, it's, it's an illusion. I mean, it only exists in comparison. It's, it's, not, it's not real. Shame is a belief. That's very good. It's an illusion. It only exists in comparison. And it's what we feel about ourselves. And it's coming from this lack of dignity. And it comes from comparing to others or to an idealized version of ourselves. Exactly. And it doesn't, the uh, shame, your feeling of shame can flip from one second to another, even though the circumstances don't change at all. It's perception. Shame exists because of our perceptions. Shame exists because of the story we tell ourselves. We tell ourselves that I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I'm not as good or as worthy as this other person or this idealized version of myself. And the flip side of shame is you know the other side of the of the non-relational coin is contempt. Contempt is a red flag that you've placed yourself in a position of moral superiority. And studies have shown that contempt is like a harbinger of of damage in relationships, you know, divorce in couples specifically. When you feel contempt, you can feel contempt for yourself or you can feel contempt for others. When you feel contempt, you're perceiving them somehow as less than, as less worthy than you, as less worthy than others. Contempt is not the same as anger. You know, anger is just, it's an emotion, right? And, and often anger is a sign that our, our moral compass is working, you know, and some people need to be more in touch with their anger, especially women. Contempt is, you know, anger can be healthy when we relate to it in a healthy way. And when we recognize our anger as an emotion, that's giving us important information. It's the emotion that arises when we perceive an injustice, something that's not fair. That's what our anger is telling us. We need to look at something that seems not fair. But when our anger has the charge of contempt, it's no longer healthy. That's a sign that we've placed ourselves in a position of moral superiority and that we are shaming somebody else in our minds or in our behaviors or ourselves. So one can have contempt for oneself as well and shame oneself. So that contempt can almost go with the shame? Yes, you can have part of yourself can be contemptuous. You can have this voice in your head putting yourself down, and that's the contemptuous voice in your head. It's your inner critic belittling yourself. And then you have this other part of you, which is usually a more vulnerable part of you, a softer part of you, probably a younger part of you that's believing that voice in your head, that's feeling I'm not good enough, that's losing your sense of power, that's losing your belief in your own dignity. So this, you know, as I said, our, our primary relationship is with ourselves and contempt and shame are two sides of the coin. And the antidote to both of them is the same. I'm about to ask you, okay, so what's the antidote? Empathy. It's impossible to look down on someone or to look up at them when we're looking through at the world through their eyes. So when you feel contempt for somebody else, that, that's an indication that you have lost connection with your empathy for that other. And when you feel shame, that's an indication that you're not empathizing with yourself. You're not viewing yourself with understanding and compassion. And the same thing with contempt. If you view yourself with contempt, the empathy is also gone, isn't it? Because you don't exactly. like what you're seeing. 
So those two, that makes so much sense. Wow. You talk about the relational immune system, which is really related to everything we're saying now. If you have shame and contempt, your immune, as a cognitive neuroscientist, I look at the whole mind-brain connection and I do re-clinical trials. I've just done a set of clinical trials where we looked at the how you're using your mind, your mind management, and then the impact on your physiology and the impact picking it up in, in neuroscientific mm. principles using the QEEG. And what's very interesting as you're talking, we see the people that like are very, just as you described, with lack of identity, the shame, the contempt, which they've lost their identity. There is this uh, direct, you can see it in the non-conscious, you can see it in the, the way that the brain, the energy in the brain is is just messed up with the QEG, the tremendous stress it puts on. And in the, in the physiology, you'll see the immune system very compromised. So you talk about ir- relational immune system. How can we strengthen that? So I know you're using it as both an analogy and as a reality, but it is because if someone is now looking at themselves with shame and contempt and seeing themselves and hating themselves, that could manifest in quite toxic behaviors towards others because they don't know how to deal with themselves and it'll affect their physiology and their main function, their mental health, everything. That's how I see it. Can you pick up on there and talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, in terms of shame and contempt, awareness, again, is the key. Really developing, you know, self-awareness has been shown to be fundamental to healthy relationships, healthy relationality, right? So self-awareness, because how do we communicate effectively? As I said, you know, the goal of communication is mutual understanding. So we communicate in order to share our thoughts and feelings with others. How do we communicate effectively if we don't even know what we're thinking or what we're feeling? So we absolutely have to do that. And we really, the more self-aware you are, the more you start to notice these things. Like I notice, oh, I notice I'm feeling contempt. What's going on? What's my narrative? Contempt, again, and shame, they, they result from a narrative. It's from a story. They're illusions other than their emotions that simply are created by our beliefs, our belief in, in, in moral superiority or inferiority. That's it. And so really the key is developing this ability to observe, developing, you you know, that's, you know, your inner observer. Medi- this is what meditators talk about. And, you, you know, meditation is a great way to do this. And there are other ways you can develop your inner observer as well. You know, pause throughout the day. Stop. What am I thinking? Ask yourself, just spend one minute. What do I notice? My thoughts are telling me, what am I thinking? What am I feeling right now? If you're not sure, well, what's happening in my body? I feel tight in my chest. What is that? Oh, I think it's, it's anxiety. You know, just once you start doing this, you start to realize that there's a very rich inner world inside of you that's happening. That's whether you want it to or not, it's happening all the time. So you might as well know what's happening so you can have some control over it. Exactly. You know, I'm so glad you're saying these things and I'm thrilled because a lot of my work has gone, well, the majority of the techniques and and processes that I've developed in my years of research is one of the biggest things I say is you've got to develop self-awareness and you've got to self-regulate. It all begins with that. If you don't think about how you're thinking and look at the impact of your thinking on yourself and others and regulate that that's the first step. You can't move forward. You can't grow. So I'm so thrilled you saying that yeah. because it's a message that my viewers and listeners are hearing and you're giving it in such a beautiful way and such a good, such good practical examples. But it does begin there because if you don't know what you're doing and, and a lot of people don't want to do that. I'm sure you've, you've picked it up, Melanie, as well in your work. People will say things like, I don't want to see what I'm thinking or if I think it's just too overwhelming or it's too scary and they'll push it away and keep themselves busy or, you know, they don't want to have those thinker, I call them thinker moments. I said, you've got to have these regular thinker moments where you can actually find out what's going on and you've got to regulate all. In fact, my the neuroscientific research shows that you actually designed to do this every 10 seconds. So we mm-hmm. literally can be in a state of self-awareness 
awareness constantly. Six times a minute, you can have conscious bursts of self-awareness. And yes, it's to train yourself to get to that point. But a lot of people don't like doing that. Have, Have you picked that up? Oh, absolutely. And they just part of it is they're not used to it. And another reason I think is because there's this belief, many people have this belief that, you know, if I really slow down and pay attention, if I really listen to my thoughts and my feelings, then they're going to overwhelm me. And then what am I going to do? And, you know, I, I would say that there is a lot of wisdom in the psyche. There's a lot of wisdom in the psyche. And, and very often, more often than not, your psyche does not give you things that you can't handle. When people haven't befriended their own psyche because they haven't slowed down to start listening and understanding, it's, a, it, it's like a new relationship, you know? And just like we're afraid of like listening to people in new relationships, sometimes they're strangers to us. I'm afraid I'm, you know, I want to get to know you, but I don't know. I don't know if I can really trust you. What if you tell me something that's going to upset me? We tend to relate to ourselves the same way because we haven't taken the time to slow down and, and, and get to know ourselves. One of the beautiful things about developing relational literacy is like that we use relationships and by relationships I'm I'm talking about as I said earlier all kinds of relationships including the ones that are so brief they're just like you know seconds long interactions those are still relationships you know an interaction is a mini relationship a relationship is really just a series of interactions so that our relationships can become the training ground on which we can cultivate greater self-awareness you know a lot of people are not and become healthier beings you know we we feminists in the in the 60s were saying this you know relationships can be the grounds on which we learn and grow and develop we don't learn and grow and develop in in isolation so we can use these our relationships as the training ground and for many people they're not motivated to sit down and pay attention to themselves but they are motivated to pay attention to somebody they love and they can learn what paying attention feels like and what paying attention looks like by doing it for somebody else. So they can practice through somebody else. I mean, there's this, you know, commonly held belief that we can't love others until we love ourselves. And I think that that was an idea that sounded good that somebody came up with and everybody just accepted. Yeah. It's without, one of those th- yeah. That's a, I'm so you glad know? you've mentioned that. Yeah. We never actually, I don't know if it was ever like studied, but we've all accepted it. Oh, well, I have to love myself before I can love you. Well, what about people who say, I never actually knew what love was until I had a baby or until I met my life partner? Like, Many people can attest to the fact that they actually learned how to love themselves through being loved by others and through loving others. I think you've just freed so many people because that's true. That is a very dominant narrative in society that you have to love yourself before you can love others. But as you say, some people say when they had that baby, that's when they really learned to love or whatever. As you say, that's, that's very, very, very insightful. And it's going to help a lot of people. Once we stop thinking individualistically, I mean, it's part of, you know, the narrative. It's this very individualistic mindset. Like it begins and ends with the self, but we're not. We're, we're relational. We're fundamentally relational beings and we learn and grow in relationship. So we learn about ourselves through our interactions with others. And it's so easy. If I think of people that are battling with themselves. They have such great relationships with, with friends that are very dear to them or, or family members or something like that. And if they can, what you're saying is if they can, if they're battling with themselves and they've got all this contempt and shame and this poor relationship with themselves, focus on, think about that relationship they have with others, focus on that and almost analyze that. Am I hearing you correctly? Almost become, you know, become aware of how you feel in that relationship and then translate that back to yourself. Is that what you're actually saying? 
Yes, that's part of what I'm saying. And sometimes people just do that automatically, right? They just, because they're interacting with others in a way that's kind and compassionate and being treated, I should say, in a way that's kind and compassionate, it gives them, like, it becomes a, an example for them of what it feels like to be treated with kindness and compassion. And then they can they can use that example and apply that. So yes, I am saying that use that example and apply it to their own lives. I mean, and you probably have observed this a lot. And most people actually have had this experience where the more you grow, the more mature you become, the lower your tolerance for toxicity is. You just get healthier. It's like when your diet gets cleaner. You know, the cleaner your diet is, the more you start rejecting unhealthy foods. Like a, a smoker can pick up a cigarette and it feels great. And, you know, if you quit smoking and you pick up a cigarette a few months later, you start coughing, your body rejects it. So most people, they grow in their relationships, the bar for health and their relationships goes up as they mature as they learn how to be healthy in relationship. And it's reciprocal automatically. Many people automatically just start treating themselves better as their relationships become healthier because they've learned what it feels like to be in a healthy relationship with somebody else. So then they can apply that to themselves. That's brilliant. That's such good wisdom as well. And that's something I often think people just you've, you've kind of brought something that's so logical, but not everyone sees that as logical because there are people that have got good relationships, but they still have a bad relationship with themselves. So it's to make that jump and say, oh, OK, I can use this and translate this feeling in that relationship into how I feel about myself. I mean, that's a very practical step. So you talk about a lot of what, what we're discussing now. That's people can find this information in this book. And where can they find, where can they get their hands on this book? And where can they find totally. out more about you? They can come to my website, melaniejoy.org. Okay, perfect. And they can get everything there. Okay, let's just yes. talk a little, can, just a couple more questions. Have you got a bit more time for a couple more questions? Let's talk about apologies sure. and how this is vital. I love how you handle that, you know, how it's vital for any relationship to survive. Because there's a lot of, I've, I've heard quite a lot of people say, well, I'm not going to apologize. Why should I apologize? It almost seems to be like a thing. And it's, it's not how I grew up. I always grew up to take ownership for your, you know, it's just, and it may just be societal, maybe age, it may be something. But I'm interested to know how you handle that's what do you say about apologies and how should we do it and why is it important when somebody's feelings are hurt when somebody feels that they haven't been treated you know with respect or fairly they're going to disconnect you know we tend to when when we don't feel safe with another person we disconnect from them in self-defense and, and that's a that's a healthy response i mean that's us taking care of ourselves but if you want to have relationships that are really based on connection you need to create an environment where the other person feels safe with you and they won't feel safe with you if they don't trust that you're going to do your best to protect them from being hurt by you, knowing that you might screw up. And one of the ways you can demonstrate this is how you respond to any hurt you've caused. A lot of times people don't feel comfortable apologizing because they don't have a strong enough sense of, you know, they, they have enough, they have a lot of internal shame. And so people who believe that our actions define our worth are probably people who have a harder time apologizing, meaning people who think if I did something bad, that means I am bad. It's going to be really hard to admit you did something bad because nobody wants to feel bad. No. Okay. So oh, that's when, so logical. Okay. Just explain that. Just say that again. That is, that is so key. So when people don't, so, so guilt is the feeling we have about a behavior. 
And it's important to feel guilty because if we don't feel guilty, we can't, you know, we don't have the motivation to change problematic behaviors often. Right. But, but shame is the feeling we have about ourselves. Guilt is the belief, the feeling I did something bad. It comes from, I did something bad. Shame is feeling I am bad. I am inferior. I am less than. So when people don't separate behaviors from worth, they automatically think that if I do something bad, that means I am bad. You know, a lot of people do this automatically because we've been conditioned to think this way. Like I, instead of feeling guilty for something we do, we feel ashamed of who we are. We automatically go to that place. That's a whole biomedical model. The current model is, is it's you, it's in your head, it's it. It's, so it's become so much about the individual and individualism versus collectivism. It's all of that has created a, a societal shift where if you do something bad, you are bad, but it's not. You do something bad, you made a mistake. It's not exactly. that you're bad, you just made some bad choices. Exactly. But when we believe that mistakes mean we're bad or that bad behaviors mean we're bad, I mean, and this is this is a much bigger problem. This is part of the toxic narrative of the culture. Like, this is how we've all been socialized. So people who don't have a strong sense of self-worth will have a harder time apologizing because it's really hard to admit you did something bad because it means that you're not good enough. All of that said, we still need to be able to apologize. And first, the first step, again, is awareness. Awareness to separate behaviors from feeling, for, from shame and from worth. And then to be able to, like, you know, put yourself in the position of the other person. You know, if they did something to hurt you, and usually when people are asking for apologies, it's often it's because they want to feel connected again. And they can't feel connected unless they feel safe that the hurt won't keep recurring. So the first thing to do when you're apologizing, an apology should reflect the fact that you understand the hurt you caused. I'm sorry I hurt you. Apology should reflect the hurt, that you understand the hurt you've caused. Right. Do you say to somebody, I'm sorry, you feel bad. Like, let's say you, you know, you let's go back to the mess, you know, making. And that we were talking about earlier, you leave a mess in your haste to get out of the house and your partner has to clean up that mess in the morning because they're working from home and they don't want to work around a mess. And they're frustrated now because they feel like you're valuing your time over their time. And so you come home and they say, you know, there was this mess here and I felt frustrated in my mind. You know, I was assuming that you were not valuing my time as much as your time. And I felt frustrated about that. Right. So your first step to apologizing is to say, yeah, I, I get it. I understand that you were frustrated, not say you're overreacting, not say, well, look, it was a mistake. Cut me some slack. People need to feel understood. They need to know that you really understand where they're coming from or they're not going to feel safe. You know, when somebody says to you, I'm, I'm sorry you feel that way, but without, you know, really acknowledging, I get why you're frustrated. I get what you're, why you're upset. You're probably thinking to yourself, well, this is going to happen again because they actually don't really get it. No, because they followed with a butt. <laughs> they followed with a butt, right? Or they're saying, I'm sorry, you're feeling that way or, you know, rather than I'm sorry for what I'm doing. So we have to express that we understand. I understand that you feel bad. I understand you feel frustrated. We should express that we feel remorse, you know, I feel sorry that you feel this way. I care about you. Take responsibility for it. Yes, I did this. Don't turn it around and say, well, you know, you wanted me to set my alarm late so that you wouldn't be woken up early. So I had to go run out, you know, early in the morning. You can explain yourself, but it's important to say this is an explanation, not an excuse. Because there are two different things. 
And then the fourth part is to reassure the person that you'll try to prevent this from happening again. So, so they know that you will do your best not to make the mistake again. So, you know, look, I, I get it. You're really frustrated. I'm sorry that my mess caused you frustration. I feel bad about that. I know I left the socks on the floor and I will just try not to do that again. I'll really make an effort not to do it again because I know it's important to you. And that's it. That, and that's the apology. That's the, that's that, the apology. That's and the, the apology. apology. Exactly. That's the apology. And the apology should be at the emotional intensity to the degree, you know, that you feel comfortable of the experience of the person who was hurt. So, you know, if there's a major betrayal and the person is feeling incredibly hurt, you know, there's an affair or, or you know, something dishonest, the person is very emotional, the other person is very emotional, and you say, oh, yeah, sorry about that. Oh, I'm sorry. You know, I feel bad for you. The person's not going to feel heard. I mean, generally, if you want a person to feel that you're really empathizing with them, it's a good idea to express your empathy to the degree that they're expressing their emotion, to try to match that. To try and match the same intensity. To so try even, to match the intensity. So so don't no, don't take your don't take your you may not think it's an issue, but for them it is. So just out of pure empathy and and relational literacy, you need to get up to recognizing that that is really important for them. You need to match that level, not try and yeah. bring them down to or brush it off by bringing it down to your level. So it's getting out of yourself and getting into the other person's shoes, which is once again empathy. It is empathy. I mean, and this is all within reason. I mean, if somebody is really emotional, you know, you may not want to amp it up to that degree. First of all, you need to be able to be authentic. And secondly, you might end up feeding the intensity too much. But to the best of your ability, you know, try to match, allow yourself to match them at least partway. Partway, where you feel comfortable. You said four things about an apology. Can you quickly just sum up those four Elements. Sure. So you would, you would, your apology would express that you understand the hurt you caused. I get it. I get that you're hurt, you know, then you would express that you feel remorse. I'm sorry. I didn't want you to feel this way. You really do feel sorry. So you understand the hurt you caused, you feel remorse, you take responsibility and you say that you'll do the be- your best to prevent the same thing from happening again. And this is all just reassurance. And sometimes people will need you to apologize multiple times. Often, not always, but often when an apology is asked for more than once, it's because the original apology wasn't sufficient because it was missing one of these components or because it wasn't authentic in some way. It didn't match that intensity. So you don't, you don't have to scream and shout and whatever, but it's that authenticity that comes through your eyes, your body language, your tone, right. or, and, the, and, and the connection that, that you, whatever you inten- your intention is going to come through to that person. So if you're coming through, oh, I'm just going to do this to keep them quiet, the person's going to pick that up. Yeah, So it's exactly. got to be genuine. It's got, you've got to mean what you're saying. Exactly. And you've got to cut yourself a lot of slack. We all have to cut ourselves a lot of slack because we have been born into a deeply dysfunctional culture. We've just been born into a mess. We don't learn the tools that we need to learn. We're screwed up by our parents. We're screwed up by Hollywood. We're screwed up by our teachers. You know, we do the best we can with what we have. So we need to also really be careful not to get perfectionistic about how we relate and beat ourselves up from not being good enough in our relationships because perfectionism is toxic. And, you know, you can see there's this toxic moral perfectionism now that's really 
dominating the airwaves and causing a lot of a lot of suffering. And so, you know, healthy relationships have wiggle room. They have wiggle room, and this includes our relationship with ourselves. They have wiggle room for people to screw up and make mistakes and be their messy, imperfect, flawed selves and still be loved and cherished because, you know, our beauty lies in our messiness not in our perfection. And so if we can love ourselves and others, you know, in, not in spite of our messiness, but even because of it, we give ourselves a great gift. Oh, that's absolutely amazing. And that's probably a really good place. I feel like we need to have another discussion because you've, you've touched <laughs> on so much incredibly good Thank stuff you. and it's, it's been amazing. And before we, we, we end off, I just wanted to quickly ask you just to, to swing around back to what you've just said about how we, this current modern era is just such a mess in terms, you know, how, why, why do you think it's like this? technology, the busyness of life, because it is a mess. I mean, it's just, I know every, doesn't every generation has their issues, but there's some very unique things that have happened in this generation that we're dealing with currently. Well, our collective level of relational literacy is very low. You know, we are really still living in what I would refer to as the relational dark ages. We really are not, most of us do not have a lot of emotional awareness. We don't have self-awareness. We really don't have the tools. And our communication is, you know, different than it's ever been in human history, where we can communicate with each other across cultures immediately with millions of people at a time. So it's a, you know, there are many, many more factors, but it's it's communica- communication-wise, it's a, a recipe for disaster as well. But I also believe that, you know, the more, one of the things each of us can do, because a lot of people feel really helpless right now, we look at the problems of the world and we're really overwhelmed and we just can't, you know, there's climate change their pandemics and we've got you know this i mean it is just incredible with what we are living with it's a lot and you know and then in our interpersonal lives a lot of people are really continuing to struggle the good news is that when we build our own relational literacy we immediately become a part of the solution in our minute to minute lives and as a part of a broader collective because this is the kind of shift of consciousness that needs to happen if we ever want to see the kind of world that we would want to raise children in that's brilliantly said. Well, I can't thank you enough, yeah. Melanie. It's been an absolute joy talking to you. I had to play on that word again because it is, it's incredible. You have so much wisdom and you've just taken, mm-hmm. it's just what you're saying is, is it, you know, when, when you're telling us what we all know, but you're verbalizing it in a way that you're bringing out what we instinctively know we relate. It's it's a, it's a concept that we can just identify. Yes, that's true. We, we can do that. It's, it's the right thing to do. So thank you for being so eloquent in expressing what is a very basic, important function of being a human. You know, yeah, getting well, us to be you. more human. No, it's thank wonderful. You. And I'd love it's, to talk to you again. Oh, it would be my pleasure. It's been it's been so wonderful talking to you. And thank you for the work that you're doing in this awareness raising work and bringing these really important messages out to so many people and helping to empower people to be a part of, you know, really positive change in their lives and their in the world. Oh, well, thank you so much. That's what I'm trying to do because it's everyone has such an important role to play and what you deliver to the table and is something that someone else can't. That's your unique. And so we're trying to do that. We're trying to bring these messages of hope to everyone because everyone was going to learn something from everyone else. And you have a beautiful message. So thank you. Thank you thank so you. much. It's been wonderful. It's been wonderful. Thank you. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter 
where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.